0: You are listening to an Irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.
1: Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world.
0: We also know that being in community with one another on this journey Will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world.
1: We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encojunto or Togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin.
0: And this is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor Dr. Robin here we are again here we are we are uh we're doing the thing we're doing it again
1: (laughs) yeah it feels like a little bit like Groundhog Day
0: it always does we have had um a lot happen since our last gathering we um had the week of the Thanksgiving holiday that is celebrated in the U.S. and um I hosted a gaggle of folks at my home. Um, a lot of people who um, whose families were elsewhere and were um, felt misplaced and wanted a place to come and have yeah. a big meal. And of course, there were you know nine of us, and I made food for two dozen. Yeah, and so it was <laughs> weird. I am still eating mac and cheese and corn pudding and yeah. stuffing and turkey, and yeah. I'm not. I'm not mad about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we went over to a friend's house, and I stayed out of the kitchen and didn't cook a thing. That's big for you. Yep, and mainly rested, which I really needed. I needed um, a deep sense of rest, and I needed to ease back in to work. But we went to a friend's house, and I lasted all but two hours.
0: That's good. I mean, not that you should be praised for your capacity, because your capacity does not equal your worth. But knowing your propensity to um, wilt like a beautiful daisy um, towards the end of the evening, um, that's that's a... That's something that I'm sure. I'm sure you enjoyed the time you were there. Yeah, it was really nice. You probably spent more time there than you anticipated you would be. You would have the
1: capacity to. Yeah, we we were there for about two and a half hours, and I got to that two and a half hour mark, and you know, it, these were people I didn't know. Um, we only knew, knew two of them, and you know, at the end of that two two and a half hours, I was like, okay, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for a siesta, and uh, but I did go to a birthday party on Sunday night uh, or Sunday afternoon, and was there for two and a half hours as well, and then came home and took a two-hour siesta. And so, (laughs) come on, the patterns are real, folks. The patterns are real. (laughs) But it, it was a good it was a good weekend. I I got lots of radical rest, which I needed, and feel like I can finish the year out strong and then who knows what's going to happen next year. Exactly. Well, we,
0: um, just posted our episode on the, um, trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, which we hope, um, those of you have enjoyed this week, but, um, we did want to briefly mention that we are, um, Satisfied? Is satisfied the right word? Um, th- that there was an element of justice that came out of the trial for the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery. That this jury in Georgia,
1: this yeah.
0: all-white plus-one-black-member jury, actually did the right thing. Yeah. Um, and so um, it is... It is a reflection of our um, our continued call for us to not have to have these conversations anymore that we mention it, but it is worthy of mention since we just did our episode um, last week on yeah. the disaster that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin with yes. Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes. So, so what are we going to talk about today, Dr. Robin?
1: Well, I started this book last year, and um, it's a book on James Baldwin. It's called Begin Again, and it's written by Eddie Glaude, and we both really love Eddie Glaude. And I just was on a panel with with Eddie, and it just reminded me of this book, and so I went back to finish it because I hadn't finished it. And it, it's a it, it's essentially a book of how we got here where we are now. And a lot of people don't know the history of how we got to here. And to think that someone like Donald Trump is an aberration, it's actually not. You know, when you look at the Reagan presidency, you can see the conditions created to make something like Donald Trump possible.
0: Right, it just manifested in a different way. Right. In what we would say was a softer right. Um, way.
1: Right. And so um so I started this book and um, I'm almost finished with it again. And I you know, it just I wanna talk about this idea of the big lie, because um the big lie is not just the GOP pushing. For Trump having won the election, there we we are all in service to the big lie, and Eddie Glad just makes some brilliant points about uh, politics in general, but particularly around the ways in which race and racism. Um, have perpetuated the big lie, and it's just really got me thinking about space and place, and um, and all that, and all that we are toiling with. Um, we are we are toiling with the fact that we are all living in service to the lie and impacted by the lie, and. So I just want to spend some time talking about and kind of tweezing out this a little bit uh, and see where it goes.
0: I love that we're going to have this conversation. Um, As you said, Eddie Glaude wrote um, this book uh, last year called Begin Again, and the subtitle is James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lesson for Our Own. And he published an essay in the New Yorker magazine that ends with what I think is a great place for us to start, which is a a paragraph reflecting on how Baldwin saw the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and the challenges that Baldwin acknowledged Black folks specifically were up against and how um, white folks were complicit in that in that challenge. Um, and so I want to just read this paragraph, the last paragraph of this essay, which is actually directly drawn from the book um, that was published last June um, and let that get us started in, in this conversation. And so Glaude writes in writing on James Baldwin, he says in Baldwin's reflections on King, he wrote that we were witnessing the death of segregation and that the question was how long and how expensive the funeral would be if he only knew. More than 50 years later, we are still marching in the procession and fighting in the streets. The world is dying but we have been slow to put it in the grave and the costs are mounting. How many of our loved ones are rotting in prisons and jails? How many are breaking their backs trying to make ends meet? How many souls have been darkened from the effects of America's original sin? True freedom for all Americans requires that we tell a better story, a true story about how we arrived here. It's time to bury that old negro and the white people who so desperately needed him and to finally begin again.
1: Yeah, you know, part of part of the book he is talking about how Baldwin wanted to write this this article about the new south and how The New South is also part of the big lie that um, there was white flight in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but now white folks are coming back to the city and displacing mostly black and brown folks. And what is the New South? You know, I think about Nashville, um, where... And I just saw something on the New York Times where over two hundred people a day are moving to Austin. And Austin is becoming un you know, it's not affordable anymore. And the same is true for Nashville. And and it just got me thinking about how much are we participating in displacement and harm? in our efforts to create whatever this is, the new South and how much of that is part of the big lie. I mean,
0: I think when I think about the lie itself, it's so multifaceted. I mean, it's like a gemstone that's got thousands of cuts on it and you, you can turn it and turn it and turn it and never find the beginning or the end. I mean, the lie includes a a necessity for, you know, money to be the source of um, everything that gets us out of everything else. Mm -hmm. And so capitalism is a tenet of this lie. Yeah. Um, The lie requires us to other people. Right. It requires us to establish... A hierarchical system of being with one another, and for us to identify who is worthy and better, and who is less worthy, and um, you know, therefore, doesn't deserve right um, to participate in the same game that the others do. Right, um, and it requires us to um, ask ourselves. Where is our faith complicit in these conversations around the lie? And where are we devoid of faith, of any kind of faith or morality and ethic in participation? And so I, I think that there are so many places we can start here, right? Um, you bring up the displacement conversation, which I I am per, I, I'm very heightened, Um, and and aware of here in Chattanooga. Um, They are attempting a redistricting plan here in Chattanooga for our, our city council's seats. And the, the reason that they are giving is because of housing and the building of housing in urban areas that are, you know, shifting the balance of power to yeah. allowing um, you know, progressive white folks and black folks to dominate certain districts in their vote. And so they, they need to split that up. They need to gerrymander it out of right. being, right. But all of that is predicated on the fact that we are we are displacing one another, right in order to be where we want to be. I am complicit in that. My family is complicit in that. And I am trying to reckon and reconcile that decision. And what does that mean? And how, how do I, um, how am I humbled by that decision and how do I repent for it? Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it's and, and then and then how do we change that? <laughs> how do we create a system that allows us to imagine something different? Something that, you know, doesn't look like us displacing one another in right. both housing and in hierarchical right. um, kind of worth ways. Um and it and and for me, then that always comes back to you know what does my what does my faith tell me I should be doing? What does my being, my very essence, tell me I should be for and about? And those things are in radical contrast.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about how we often talk about how things are radically interconnected, and you know, I'm thinking about even some of the 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 bills that were up like the infrastructure bill that was recently up and how if they would remove or add one thing it would impact a dozen other things and i wonder how careful we have really been to build society and and it and it feels to me that we have been haphazard in building society and we have been selfish and we have only focused on really the dominant culture's needs and have not we have not created conditions to care for whoever the other is and you know, every religion has a kind of nod to the neighbor, but we have not built society in service to the neighbor. We have built society in service to the lie, whatever the lie is. You know, at at that moment, right? Uh, um. It could be a number of things, obviously, and and it probably always is a number of things, and and I, I I worry, I worry that we can't recover from all the bullshit that has come before. I mean, we are still fighting the same thing that Martin Luther King and others did. Yeah, I mean the lie in.
0: The line not only um, encourages us to manifest societies in the way that you just explained, but it also allows then for the lack of community, of true community right. within those societies, to create um, tentacles that are not just not involved in community, but are anti. Mm-hmm. Communal, I mean the the lie of slavery brought about the Klan during Reconstruction, right? Um, the lie of segregation brought about white citizens' councils, right? In in the fifties and sixties, the lie of uh, white minority and, and fear of power brought about the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys and QAnon and all of the, all of the things that are contributing to the big lie around the presidential election that many believe to not be valid. And, and those things create additional fractures. Mm -hmm. They create additional conditions for us to have to, have to. It takes our eyes off of
1: yeah. what it is that's
0: most important. I mean, anytime yeah. one of these one of these tentacles spins off and and manifests into something that is harmful and hateful and ugly, our attention is redirected to those things. Right. In some ways, because we are trying to squash them, but in other ways, because they are simply something that. Um, fetishizes for us the ways that we are different versus yeah. the ways that we are the same. Yeah. And so how do we, how do we look at the the lie that has been per- perpetuated throughout history? Um, and this lie goes, you know, back even into our, our being as a country and, and the, murdering and genocide that we committed on Native peoples here on this land. But how do we take what we have seen to be the manifestation of this lie over hundreds and hundreds of years and either reform it into something that creates the kind of society and community that we dream about, or how do we literally Stick a piece of dynamite in the middle of the lie and blow it to shreds so that it no longer is a part of the, the work that any of us are trying to do in the world.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's part of what we are trying to do here by by just having the conversation and by also advocating for a kind of relationality that would create conditions for. Unteasing it, right i I don't know if taking a stick of dynamite and blowing it up is 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 good i mean i I understand the metaphor, but I also wonder what of what of the big lie do we need to see more clearly? You know, blowing it up is is um, it it would it would destroy pieces of it. I I do think that we need to somehow dismantle things, but we need to be able to see very clearly these machinations because we keep repeating the same problem, right? We, you know. I in, in the book, Eddie Glaude talks about the number of black and brown people who are in prison has increased over 500% since the Reagan presidency. And the Reagan presidency is what started the war on drugs, accelerated by George Bush I, started um, criminalizing black people. So the 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 fact that black and brown people were now occupying prisons was greater and also Reagan defunded mental health and so you have a lot of people who have trauma who are now on the streets living with various mental health conditions so you have you have Something very particular happening in government, and also Reagan advocated for states' rights, which is why you have so much of the South now – it's hinged on states' rights. Reagan was racist, and and even though he was charming, black people saw through that. And – I think we I think we all, you know, especially white folks and and white passing folks who have been socialized white need to be able to see very clearly what the issue is. Because I think that if we if we don't see it, we won't believe it and we won't be motivated to change and we will continue to harm people. So there's a kind of self-reflection that needs to happen with self so that we can see very clearly these machinations and big as Eddie Glaude talks about, begin again.
0: I think we are so, we are a, we are a punitive people. Yes. We are a people who demand accountability, who demand uh, right, be praised and wrongness be um, be punished we want to implicitly and and often explicitly hold people accountable for not only what happened in the past but what is happening in the present and um, and I think unfortunately, it is that punitive nature of our being that forces us to feel as though this conversation is black or white yeah is is a binary when there are there are so many truths and so many falsehoods woven into this conversation yeah. um, that it is not about our need to find rightness in it it is about our need to find creative and holistic ways to manifest it into something that is that works for us yep. in the present i mean that's why you often talk about the the concept of composting this this understanding that our waste is never truly Waste; it has the capacity to regenerate right. and to create conditions for other things to grow. Yep. and so you know, I, I am I am both challenged by our our desire to uh, d- d- designate what's wrong in, in, in our, in our conversations. And I'm challenged by our desire for, for punitive actions to be the thing that we keep our eye on. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we rid ourselves of that binary? How do we rid ourselves of an ethic of right versus wrong versus an ethic of composting in a way that is generative and that allows
1: other things to grow. Well, this is the perennial question, right? Like um I find But you're the you're the ethics scholar. And so <laughs> do you have all the answers? <laughs> I don't have all the answers, but I I do think about this and and on Twitter I was going back and forth with a colleague of mine, Bo Eberly, who's finishing over at UNC Chapel Hill. And we kind of were just saying that it seems like the a- activism in the past five years have it's just come up with so many barriers and it's backfired on people. And that sometimes the most radical thing to do is to do nothing. And so I've
0: been sitting with that. Oh my God, that's – this like the Enneagram 7 in me just died a little inside.
1: <laughs> I, can't, I can't do nothing. I can't. Like it's physically impossible. Anyway, sorry, keep going. But, but it's an interesting proposition of – What if in the face of everything, the most radical thing is to do nothing and to turn inward and to do X, whatever X is. I think that's why I have been taking to like, what am I paying attention to? What, what captures my attention? Where, where do I want to put my energy? Because I'm finding that when we chase after the big issue, it's so wrapped up in the lie that that my chasing after it is just in service to the lie. And so how do we be smart and strategic? I mean, this is why mutual aid communities are so powerful. Uh, They are opting out of the normative system and, and being really innovative with a focus on relationship. And so I find those solutions to be much more effective than rushing to the streets. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't rush to the streets, but I am saying that we should be strategic. And how we spend our time. and and also there's no time to just sit and think. I understand. And so I
0: am compelled to ask what I think is an even harder question for some of us, which is, what do we do about our what do we do about our churches? and our faith communities, and our faith leaders, who are, some are participating in the lie, some are not participating in the lie, but are not denouncing it, or, um, you know, being a, a counter voice to what they are seeing. Others are being, you know, very vocal, and very outspoken in positing what, what they truly believe, you know, Jesus's reaction to the kind of work that bad works that we are seeing in the world happening, what, what, what we should be doing. But there's such a complicity in our faith communities with this conversation. And I'm, it, like, it actually makes me like my skin crawl To think about not only the the obvious things about you know that eighty four percent of evangelicals you know voted for Donald Trump and um, the percentage of evangelicals is climbing in the United States because of this perception that that's the only way that they're going to kind of regain their hold on whiteness again and I mean all of these things like the like those things feel very ancillary to me in the conversation of what is community as it relates to our faith yeah, and how is, how can our faith communities replicate the kind of community that you speak of when they can't even get their shit together enough to become communities that are not homogenous in the color of their skin or homogenous in their identities or homogenous in their politic?
1: Well, I, I think the first step is knowing your history. I, I think a lot of churches, faith spaces, religious organizations don't know their history. They don't know where they've come from. And and they perpetuate the big lie in their not knowing the history. And so I think we've got to tell the truth in these spaces, and we've got to do it in a way that decentralizes power and and creates opportunity for multiple truths to exist at the same time. We've got to get out of this black and white thinking that – religious leaders are always right they may actually be wrong and they may actually be perpetuating harm um i just i just got an email today about something this racial justice committee at the school is uh wants to have a logo built for for the Racial Justice Committee. And literally the, the 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 paragraph was here's an art competition to for the logo. And I'm like, even even there there's this competition language. Like you're building a logo, it shouldn't be competitive. So I, I use that as an example of even when we try to do something good. We are doing it the wrong way because competition is part of the problem. How do you create non-competitive relationships that are just present instead of pitting people against people? That's so much of our work right now. Right. I think it's a difficult
0: thing for faith communities specifically to imagine because they are conditioned to look to their leader or leaders to guide their, um, the walk that they have, the, you know, whatever their faith journey is, um, Many of them are smart enough to recognize whether their leader is someone that they should or shouldn't be listening to. Yeah. Many of them are not smart enough to recognize that. And so I'm, I'm left with curiosity around how, how those that are in the midst of faith communities and want to remain in faith communities, even thwart that conversation from the inside. What does that look like? What does it look like to manifest a community, um, a community that is the antithesis to the multifaceted lie that has gotten us to 2021 and offer space within what in many instances is a problematic community right. <laughs> for a community that actually can have hard conversations and celebrate indifference, not in indifference, but in their differences (laughs) and, and be a, a, a a group of humans that are truly imagining the world that they want to see. I think that as I look at the faith communities that I'm most, uh, intimate with, that I have the most history with, that's a very, that's a scary proposition Mm -hmm. um, because it in many cases means that once that new community, that imaginative community forms, it no longer fits with, it no longer um, can handle the, Quality or the rhetoric that is coming out of the umbrella community under which it is a part. Yeah, if it truly is um, what what you are imagining it can be, it's hard to remain. And then, what does that look like? And where is the courage?
1: What what, you know, one of the questions I have is why do we why do we depend so much on hierarchies? Is it because what we've socialized ourselves into? is it that we we need to be passive and we need someone to be speaking to us what happened to relationship there you know so i
0: mean the hierarchy of leadership has been a part of our conversation for i mean as much as long as recorded history has right. has been around right whether it is simply the leader of a tribe of a tribal people in some part of the world um, or the head of a monarchy uh, or the president of a country or the pastor of a church or the CEO of a company. There is this perception that leaders are the guidepost Mm -hmm. leaders are the benchmark, right? When as, as you and I both agree, it is in the relationality Mm -hmm. that, Things are accomplished, right. that um, dreams get realized, Right. Um, that, we, that we truly become the community that um, prophets like Martin Luther King Jr. imagined for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of the work is, and, and I know I say this a lot, but it is in the work of imagination. We, so much of our work is a failure to imagine what's possible. When we fall back into old scripts that that are in service to the lie. Whatever and one of those news- scripts
0: is a script of hierarchy. Yeah. It's a script of leaders being the ones, whether it is because of schooling or of a vote right. or of um, you know a dedication to a cause that yeah. has accelerated them up the ladder, um, that they are – the ones worth listening to, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, i i place I, I place great worth on those who um, are, you know, have 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 credentials and have credentialed themselves in magnificent ways, yeah at the same time when those credentials become barriers to relationality right when the credentials become the only thing that matters in a higher in in a relationship system meaning one is better than the other because one has something more than the other does right it it, it completely destroys mm-hmm. what what Imagination allows right. for, right. and and those systems need to be thwarted in order for imagination to take place. Yeah, and the question is, do we have the courage to do that? Do we exactly. have the capacity and the courage to reimagine? Right. Um, and yeah, I don't think the lie will ever, um, you know, find a stick of dynamite at its belly, um, but it has to. It has to be disassembled and reassembled in ways that allow for a possibility to happen.
1: Yeah. I, I know that one of our hopes and dreams is to try to get Eddie Glott onto this podcast so that we could have more of this conversation. Um, so I hope that will happen at some point. But th- th- this this book You know, if you're looking for a book, if you're interested in James Baldwin, go read or listen to this book. It's amazing. It's called Begin Again. And it really helps us see how imbricated history is on itself. And, you know, there is so much there for us. You know, we we think if we read all the how-to-be-anti-racist books, we will arrive. But... If you don't understand the historical imaginations of what has created systemic racism, you will be missing the mark on that.
0: It's a both-and. It is an understanding of history that then leads us to an imagination of what is possible. We can't simply learn and then do nothing, and we can't do without having learned. right, And so there, there, there is a plumb line, friends, between those two things. And so um, I would encourage you to not, don't feel stuck in one or the other, um, but also recognize that um, your work will have failings if you don't understand how and why the problem you're working on came to be. Mm-hmm. Not just in the immediate time, but in the time hundreds of years prior. Yes. Um, And you can't simply sit with books and believe that your ability to retain and and capture and learn all of this information without getting your hands dirty in the work will actually benefit any of the dreaming and imagination that we have for what's possible. So um, that's our encouragement for you. Um, We... Uh, Thank you for being with us this week. Don't forget to follow Activist Theology on all of the socials at Activist Theology. um, And do join our community on the app at atporch.com. We'd love to see you there. We'd love to get deeper into these conversations with you in a smaller, more intimate way. And until next week, Dr. Robin.
1: Let's get free. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We
0: can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from Ten South Sounds. I get my hands dirty, I show up so early, they show me no mercy, so I just keep working. Maybe God could save me, all my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit
1: irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.